Uh, so today we're going to be digging into the letters to the churches in Revelation. Uh, in January, we had a young adults retreat, I think February, sometime in the winter. We, uh, we did, uh, the weekend focus was end times and various topics within that. And I was teaching on two of the letters and I was like, this is so good. And I mentioned to Greg that I might want to do it. And he said, it's okay. So I'm excited. We're going to be going through just one today because there's an introduction part in one, uh, chapter one that's important. And then throughout the next year or two, whenever uh, I, come, I show up, you'll just randomly see a Revelation letter sermon. So <laughs> in the next year or two, we'll get through them. We'll do two at a time after this. Uh, so we're going to be starting chapter one, as I mentioned, in, as an intro, and then covering the first letter, which is the letter to the church at Ephesus. So I'm glad Greg read Ephesus, uh, Ephesians, so that was good. So let's pray. Lord, uh, we are thankful for uh, your sacrifice, Jesus, your love for us, as Mark mentioned and prayed, Lord, that you, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us today, reveal your love for us. Lord, afresh, Lord, even for those that may have been following Jesus for decades, Lord, that it would become fresh again today, that there would be a sweet closeness to your spirit today, and that your spirit would speak to us clearly, God. Lord, uh, even as we open up the passage and, and get a vision of what you look like today and, and in the future, Lord, we are fearful in the sense that your glory cannot be touched, and we cannot touch your glory today, but we know that your spirit can speak um, and, and make Jesus known today, so we pray that you would do that, God. And uh, Lord, we look forward to the day that you return. Lord, thank you that you gave these letters divinely to us so that we can learn what to do until you come again. And Lord, quicken our hearts to what is to come and not be distracted in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are going to be starting chapter 1, Revelation, verse 9 through 11. We are going to just get right into it, so I'll read it now. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So John, he's the author through the spirit of the book of Revelation. John was the disciple of Jesus that we hear in the Gospels um, and wrote other books as well. He was the only disciple that wasn't martyred, whether through various means. He was not martyred for his faith, but as we can see here, he was essentially banished to Patmos, which is an island off of Greece. And most scholars believe that it was a, like a prison camp of sorts, so it wasn't like a vacation home, like get to sit in the Mediterranean and, and meditate on the word. No, it, it was, a, it was a, a tri, a tri, like basically prison in Patmos. And we, we find out here that it was on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So because he was bringing the word of God, teaching the word of God, um, sharing the gospel to non-believers, that he was then imprisoned and banished. And I'm very grateful that he was not martyred immediately because God used him and set him apart to use and, and to write this book of Revelation that is so um, good for, for our discipleship as well. And so here it says, on the Lord's day, most likely it's a Sabbath, so the first day of the week. Some believe that it could be, uh, 
there was a lot of pagan holidays that they just declared that this is not a pagan holiday, this is the Lord's Day, so he was set apart. Either way, it was a day that was set apart, that John set apart for the Spirit of God to move. And, and here it says that he was in the Spirit, and I'm sure a lot of you all have heard of that we abide in, in the Spirit, we abide in Christ, and, and I would say that that is good, and that's the more constant throughout our lives. But this is more than that, with the word that's used for it. It's really a, a deep, that he's in the, in the presence of God. He's praying, he's meditating on the, on the spirit of God, on the word of God, the things that the Lord has done. And so this was a unique revelation from God, a unique presence of God that came. I don't think he was doing this, say, while shoveling or something else, because they'd probably be like whipping him to get back to work. But he, he set apart a time. And so just put ourselves in this situation where you're in prison or you're in a manual labor or even in your trials of life, the physical pains that you go through, the relationship problems that you might be enduring, the work problems that you might have been enduring. A lot of times we can just sulk. John could have just kind of sulked of like, darn it, why do I have to be here? I just want to be with the church. I want to be free. And, but instead of sulking, he went into the presence of God. And so just as a quick application here from John and, and this is... Are we giving time to allow God to speak to us? And yes, we should be praying in the car, in the shower, in the, while we do work, whatever it might be. But are we dedicating time to just sit in his presence? Are we coming into his presence expectant, both in humility and worship? When things are going well, life is calm, we got a routine, waking up at the same time or reading at nights, that's all well and good. But I believe it really tests us when we are in the midst of trials, pains, persecutions, uh, whatever might be going on, are we running to the presence of God? And we cannot manufacture the presence of God. We cannot manufacture this, even what John went through, where, where the Lord spoke to him very clearly. But we can essentially uh, get the ground ready for God to speak. And so in the midst of trials, and I know a lot of you are going through trials in various capacities, but are you running and sitting in God's presence? Just sitting there and letting him speak to you. Let him sing over you even. Let him speak truths over you. And I believe God is waiting for us oftentimes to just sit at his feet and he will speak. A lot of times we say God's not speaking in this desert time, in this trial time, but are we sitting at his feet? So hopefully we can run to that. And I think that will be applicable to the church in Ephesus as well, which is why I wanted to cover it. And so as he's experiencing this presence of God, he's also hearing this voice sounding like a trumpet. And so that's pretty unique. If something sounds like a trumpet, I would, that would get my attention. Uh, so he turned around and in this uh, a loud voice trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So a very clear communication. And we'll see later that the letter was not summarized by John. It was dictated by Jesus himself. So John was just the scribe in this situation. And then verse 11, it says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And so I'm going to put a map up there. I know Greg always puts maps. I guess I've been under his teaching too long, so I'm going to put up a map. <laughs> so that, these are the maps of the seven churches that are mentioned here. Uh, you'll see Ephesus is right by the sea, uh, which is important. This does not mean that this is all of the churches in the whole world, in the whole region. We don't know exactly why these seven churches were listed, 
But we do know that the, the number seven in the Bible oftentimes refers to completeness, that it's everything. Uh, another interesting note, Paul wrote to seven churches as well, so there's some correlation there. Uh, but either way, we know from Scripture and also from church history that these were very real churches. Uh, so these were not letters to kind of the general fake churches, if you will, but these are very real churches in Ephesus that Paul planted and others planted that they are writing to. Some believe that the church, these letters are referring to church history, so each church is a different part of history. You kind of have to do some gymnastics to figure out like which history. So I, I personally believe, and, and a lot of scholars agree, that it's seven real churches that these are being written to, but at the same time, that these churches and these letters are to the time for all churches in the church age, and the church age being from when Jesus ascended until the return of Jesus, and we are in the, the, the church age, if you will. And so these letters are to Ephesus, Pergamum, Sardis, all those, but they also to the believers today. So they are, and I think it's important that as we read these letters, that these letters are to us. That we shouldn't be like, ah, it's those people, those, those Ephesians, they're struggling. No, like these are letters to us that we should be encouraged by and also um, in, uh, inspired to obey uh, Christ in these letters. So Jesus commanded John to write these letters to seven churches based on what he saw. So the question is then, what did he see? So let's read verses 12 through 16 now. It says this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a short, sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Pretty crazy scene, right? Trying to envision that. I, I, no picture would do that justice. But also, it's maybe not what you expect from Jesus. Especially in our culture today, there's so many different images and media, shows, movies, pictures of the human Jesus, but this is a different Jesus than what we might think of. But let's maybe recap the scene. There's seven lampstands, so lampstands that are kind of like around the Son of Man, and that Son of Man is Jesus, as we know from other parts of Scripture. Uh, in some way, he's probably human-looking, but at the same time, obviously not human-looking because his eyes are fire and a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. I can't do that. So it's, he's not fully human, but they, he is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. And then Jesus, in this scene, had a long robe, a golden sash, a white hair, eyes of fire, bronze feet, voice like roaring water, face was shining like the sun. He held seven stars and two-edged sword. And so this is a crazy scene that, what do you, how do you even describe that? And in this description, as you know, that John used, there's a lot of words like, like. The, it was like this. It was like this because words do not do Jesus' presence, his glory, justice. And yes, he came as a man, but this is just as much Jesus as he was when he was a human. 
So what do we do with this scene? What does this even mean? What is John supposed to write to the church based on this? And thanks be to God, I think God knows of we'd be confused and like, what do we do with this? So let's keep, re- keep reading and we'll get some key pieces of information of this vision. So read, let's read Revelation 1, 17 through 20 says this. When I saw him, the son of man, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you, show, you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus did absolutely come down as human, as I mentioned before, and he walked among us and we should be celebrating that constantly and especially as Christmas and and all these things but we can run the risk especially in our culture and our image uh, centric and image focused culture uh, that that we see Jesus only as a human or even majority of humanness he is both human and he's also this God of glory that we sit see at the throne see in this vision so this passage clearly shows the deity of Jesus and maybe a different view of Jesus for some of us. And this is not the situation that we may envision Jesus, but this is who Jesus is. He is the one to be feared. And this is important as we dig into the letters as well, the context that Jesus gave the words of the letters of this vision of Jesus with eyes of fire, of a sharp two-edged sword of glory that cannot even be written. This is not just a gentle Jesus. This is the glorified and deity Jesus in, in glory. And so we have to be remember of who this is coming from uh, as we read the letters. And we also have to understand that Jesus was one who both gently and came, compassionately came to save and serve us as he came 2,000 years ago. And he calls us to salvation, but also one who is to be feared and has a two-edged sword and eyes of fire. John experienced both of these as he fell down. He fell down as dead, so he experienced the fear of God. But then what did Jesus respond with? He said, fear not. And so the fear of God was fully uh, uh, fully shown, but also the compassion of Jesus of fear not and lifting him up was also shown. And so we have to balance the two of fear of God, but also the compassion and the mercy of God lifting us up. And that'll be important as we go through the letters. So we can have fear, but also confidence in Jesus at the same time. They are not mutually exclusive. And we should not favor one or the other, but must communicate both the holiness and fear of Jesus. At the same time, we share the love and grace of Jesus. And so my question to you is, and to us is, do we meditate on both? Do we sometimes maybe need to read both the Gospels and Revelation in the same sitting to understand the fullness of God, the fullness of Jesus? But praise God that Jesus didn't leave John dead because there would be no book, but he reminded him of his duty. He lifted him up and he gave him a glimpse of some of the meanings of the scene. So the two things he very clearly gave to us of meaning. So the seven stars in Jesus' hand. John must have been really confused at that point of what are these stars. So he says clearly here that these stars 
are the angels. In, in, your, in probably most of your translations, some might have messengers. It, the word literally means messengers here. And so there's two popular interpretations of this one. More simply is that the angels are the pastors or the leaders, the elders of the church, that they are getting the letter from John, from, the, the, from God, and then they are to communicate to the greater church. I think that's, that's reasonable. I would probably be in that camp. There's also another interpretation that it could be an angel that is, quote-unquote, assigned to the church. So it's a literal angel, a literal messenger from uh, the angelic realm that is going to be the messenger. This is plausible. Uh, Hebrews 1.14 says this, Are they, being angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so there is an aspect that there could be an angel, it could be literal, but we don't really know for sure, but it is plausible both. Uh, But I would say more likely it's to the leader because God uses humans oftentimes to bring the word of God, to bring the the message of God to people. And either way, or even if it's a both-and situation, it's a messenger. But notice Jesus has these messengers in his right hand. Any idea of what is significant about right hand? It, Jesus went to the right hand of the Father. And so it's, it's welcoming, him, welcoming the messengers that he has us in his grips. He has control, yet protection over his messengers. He has constraint, but also it, we can be a recipient of his love when we are in his hands. And so the messengers of God are in the hands of God. This is a joyous, yet fearful thing. The next thing that Jesus uh, Jesus tells John what the vision means is the lampstands, the seven lampstands. So they are the churches themselves, the churches that we mentioned previously. Note that the image, the lampstands were around Jesus, Jesus being the center, which is important symbolism as well, especially as we go into the, the letter to Ephesus. It does not give immediate explanation on some of the other descriptors of Jesus, and we won't go into them in the detail right now, but each of the letters that we'll study over the next like two years or whenever it is, each of the letters have a piece of this vision in the letters, that they introduce Jesus as the one with fire and, and the sword, or the one that has uh, the voice like the waters. And so that's why the vision is important as we go into the letters. So we'll go more into the explanation when we get to those churches. So let's get into the letters. Each of the letters actually have a common pattern. Uh, you can read a bunch of different commentaries. You'll get different outlines. But this, hopefully this helps of kind of the, what the letter format is. The first and foremost is the letter tells us which church it's going to. So that's helpful. Very clear. Okay, this is going to the church of Ephesus. The second is the attribute of Jesus, the author. And it pulls the attributes of Jesus from the vision that we just read, which is why it's important we read that. The next is, in each letter, there's commendation for what is good in the church. And I'm so grateful for that because God's not a God who's just trying to find what's wrong and just throw lightning bolts at us. He's ready to show us what is good and to encourage us. We as, he knows us as humans. We do need encouragement to keep on going as to what is good. And so each of the letters have um, a commendation for what is good. But at the same time, there's also rebuke for sin in the church. Two of the churches don't really have this as much, which is encouraging too, because it's like, oh, those churches must be doing well, praise the Lord. But most of them have a rebuke for sin in the church. But thankfully, it doesn't stop at rebuke of you're doing this wrong, 
but rather, what do you do now, now that you know that it's wrong? Now that you've been convicted of a sin or convicted of a wrongdoing or a wrong attitude, now here's the corrective action. Here's the command to go. And, that, and then at each of the ends of the letter, there's a call to listen or obey. Uh, it, it's uh, for all who has ears, let him hear. And so a call to obey. And then lastly, a promise that oftentimes leads to eternity or end times. So you'll notice that each of these letters have a very clear focus of what is to come when Jesus returns. And that is so clear. There's no more clear uh, communication to us as believers that every single one of the churches are being promised, are communicating a, a, a truth about eternity. And so we are not living for this world. We are living for what is to come. So we'll see that in each of the letters. And so as a reminder, these letters are valid and applicable to churches today. All of them have a promise or warning of what is to come. And we, are, we can take these words literally and apply them to our lives. So I'm super excited as we get into uh, the church of Ephesus uh, that the Lord's going to speak to us at Calvary Chapel, Mercer County in New Jersey in 2023. It, the word is living today. So let's get into Ephesus. A little background on Ephesus. We've went through it in the book of Acts. It's talked about multiple times. Ephesus is a religious and cultural economic center of really the known world. And as you remember from the map before, it was right on the edge of the water. So the ports, it was perfect for uh, logistics, for transportation, for people visiting, uh, everything like that. But because it's such a global reach, if you will, in the religious, cultural, and economic, there was also many gods from all regions of the world. Uh, one of the more famous, and Greg had mentioned it when he was in the book of Acts, but Artemis or, or the, uh, Diana, the goddess of fertility was there, uh, very much focused on sexual uh, worship. And so there was thousands of, of prostitutes, if you will. There was also many other gods there is significant sexual sin and demonic activity in the city of Ephesus. Paul, we read from Acts, uh, delivered people from demonic oppression and possession uh, during his time in Ephesus. So it really was a, a dark place in Ephesus. Uh, th there's one quote. It says this uh, on Ephesus by a commentator. It says, Ephesus was a stronghold of Satan. Here, many evil things, both superstitious and satanic, were practiced. Books containing formula for sorcery and other ungodly and forbidden arts were plentiful in that city. And so this is what the church was up against. And you might look at that and it's like, there's not, God's not going to move in that. Like, there's too much demonic activity. There's too much sorcery. There's too much all of this sexual sin. But here, we saw a huge move of God. Paul stayed for over two years teaching, healing the sick, casting out demons. This is where he was persecuted because so many people came to the faith that the sales for the idol makers were going down and they were starting a riot to, against Paul of stop, stop converting people. Stop bringing people to Jesus because no one's buying these idols. And so God was moving in the midst of great darkness. And we look at our culture today and yes, we may not have temples of other gods very much. We may not have demonic activity every day, everywhere. But I really believe we're seeing more and more of that 
in everyday locations. Demonic activity. We're seeing sexual sins that only were in the dark previously come out to the light. It's front and center. We see uh, the worship of Satan, the worship of other gods so clearly by even our neighbors. And so we are in the midst of a culture that is becoming, I would say, more like this Ephesus that we read about in times. And so this is an applicable letter, both in the words of Christ, but also in the context of what they were working with in Ephesus. So let's dig in and read the first three verses of of Revelation chapter 2. It says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And so here is the clear communication of who the letter is to, the angel of the church of Ephesus, most likely the pastor. And then Jesus, from the previous chapter, uh, it says here that he was the one who holds the seven stars in the right hand. So he holds the messengers in his hand. He walks among the seven golden lampstands. He walks among the churches. And so think about the context of Ephesus where there is so much demonic activity and an outright sin in the daylight. The fact that the Lord holds us in his hands, the fact that the Lord is walking amongst us is so encouraging. And so there's a reason Jesus used this part of the imagery of the vision in Ephesus for the church at Ephesus because they needed it, because this was applicable to them. That, this was encouraging to them. And so the Lord knows when we need the encouragement, and he gives us the right encouragement. And so Jesus clearly states who he is, and that should give us comfort. That should give us ears to hear, because Jesus, this one who is to be feared, this one who is holding us, He's speaking to us. Now let me listen. And I pray that we would listen as well here. So verse 2, it gets into the commendations. He saw this church, their works, toil, and patient endurance. And the word for works and toil, this is related to working until complete exhaustion. This is not referring to maybe just meeting once a week or volunteering for some outreach once a quarter or just trying to share the gospel on maybe Christmas and Easter. Or just trying to send your child to VBS once per year. So just kind of checking something off the list. This is referring to the church giving all of their energy and emptying themselves to the point of exhaustion. And I know some of you are like that. Some of you maybe not. But this is, it's emptying to the point of exhaustion that Jesus was commending them. That their effort was there. That they were doing so much. They were busy and seemingly with good things. Because if they were busy visiting the temple prostitutes, he'd be like, that's not, that's not good. But they were busy in a good way. They were busy about God's business. So he was commending them. And I know that there are people here that are truly are toiling for the kingdom of God, the Jesus with flames of fire, and who we fall at his feet and, and die in a sense. He commends it. He commends you. And so for those who are exhausted, toiling for the kingdom of God, longing for your friends and family to know Jesus, longing to grow closer to Jesus in study and prayer, longing to be in deeper fellowship with other believers, God commends you in that, even when you are exhausted. 
He sees the, em- the emptiness we have when we have kids and we have nothing left to give, but we are seeking to grow them and disciple them in the name of Jesus. He sees our efforts in our workplace to be faithful to God in our work and, and even being a testimony. He sees that and he commends it. He sees that you are empty and he will refill you and give you what is needed. And even in this midst of, of toil and work and doing all these things, he also commended their patient endurance. That these people weren't just tired one day a year, but they were consistently, that they kept enduring it. Not everything was easy. Remember the persecution, people rioting against them. I can't even imagine that because we don't see that in our day today. But that would exhaust me if people were rioting against me. But they endured, they patiently let the Lord move. And so this culture is seemingly getting the victories. And I would imagine some of you even, it seems like the immoral culture, the godless culture is winning in a lot of ways in our culture. And it's hard to endure and to be patient. But the people of Ephesus seemingly were patient. They endured it. They also, they were commended, they were not bearing with evil. And I'll be just very clear here that unrepentant sin has no place in the church. It has no place in the Christian. Probably every one of us in some way is struggling with sin in some way, shape, or form. And I'm not speaking about that because you're in the fight. The Lord is fighting, allowing you to fight through those things, and you're longing for holiness. But for unrepentant sin that has been confronted and you not wanting to repent, there is no place for it in the church. And it appears that F, at the church at Ephesus did not allow, say, for example, people to go to the temple prostitute and then come to a Bible study at night. They said, no, this is not allowed. And they, they handled them with, with truth. But Greg even mentioned it last night. Discipline in the church, confrontation of sin, always has the goal of restoration. And so if you are in sin and unrepentant sin, Yes, you need to repent of that, turn from it, and stop it, and, and ask for forgiveness. But there, there is an opportunity to be free from unrepentant sin. And so I pray that if there's anyone that is in sin, and you know it, yet you don't want to stop it, then this message is for you that the church of Ephesus was commended to get rid of that sin, to not allow that to infiltrate the church. And I would say, unfortunately, in America, I would say this is happening more and more. So we need to be careful to not let sin be allowed to stay, to to grip a hold on people. Not the struggle. The struggle is going to happen until we get to heaven. But not letting the unrepentant sin have a hold on us. And then it goes on about the false teaching. It says, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And this is related to not bearing with evil because false teachers oftentimes... They can share the the right gospel about Jesus, but then, oh, you can just live how you want. I literally have been to a church here in this region that said, oh, you are saved. Say this prayer. Don't change anything. Just come back next week. That's a problem, both in the bearing with evil, so the evil works, but also the false teaching. And what's interesting here, if we go back to Acts 20, I'll read verses 29 through 31. Paul warned the elders of the church at Ephesus that this will come. 
It says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will rise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And so it seems that the church heeded Paul's warning because Jesus commended their work in protecting the truth, teaching faithfully the word of God. This is still our command today. 1 John 4, 1 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And that's a happy ending, if you will, of Paul warning them. And a lot of times in the Bible, you're like, oh, they forgot again. Or the Israelites, oh, they forgot again. But this is a, a positive that they were warned. They took the heeding of the warning and Jesus was pleased. He was commended. They were commended. And so the question here is, will we be commended in this area of false teaching or in any of these areas? I really believe we are blessed as a church in this area of teaching. Going verse by verse, you can't make up anything. We're just going verse by verse and telling you what the Bible says. And so we're blessed with teaching of Greg and others um, to keep this at the forefront, to not allow anything to creep in. And even if it's the gospel, but other things that are not important, like in 1 Timothy we talked about a few weeks ago, the genealogies, the things that just distract us from Jesus. We need to allow those to not be in the midst. So we go on, verse 3, it says, it reiterates a lot of the commendations, we'll go briefly, but remember, these people were doing it for Jesus' name's sake. Uh, as it says here in verse 3, be, uh, bearing up for my name's sake. So these people were doing good, but also doing it in the name of Jesus. So it seems like nothing's wrong. This church is going to get scot-free, and they're going to be just flying to heaven. They were not trying to build their church silo. Some pre churches preach too much about themselves. They, they preach about Jesus for his name's sake. And it would be nice if the lender ended there. It would be like a nice feel-good story of like, wow, this is so good. Praise the Lord. But unfortunately, and we'll go on to verse 3 and 4, the, or 4 and 5, the Lord does have something against them. So it says this in, in verse 4 to 5. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So in the midst of all this, the commendations and encouragement, which is not invalidated, that is still true and real. It does not get rid of the commendations and encouragement. But at the same time, Jesus pointed out something about their love. And first, to note that this is the agape love, the unconditional love that is mentioned. And notice here that it means that these people could have shown evidences of love. It doesn't mean that they never loved. They might have loved when they were serving people at the street or when people came into the house for Bible study that they loved people. But there was something missing about that love. It seemed to be superficial. And note here too, that this was, they left the love. It says they abandoned the love of Jesus. It was not taken away from them. Jesus still loved them, same yesterday, today, and forever. But they abandoned the love of Jesus. 
And in addition, I would imagine that some of this love of Jesus also spilled over into the second part of the love commandment. And the love commandment says this. It's, it's how Jesus summarizes the commandments. It says this, Matthew 22, 37 to 39. And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so in the midst of ministry and service, both in and outside of the church of Ephesus, they may have been getting more and more maybe frustrated with people. Maybe they were getting a little annoyed when a certain person walked through or said something. They may have thought that they deserved better as servants or ministers, but they still kept serving. They kept doing it. But what was the source of their love? What was the source of the issue? They were trying to serve people to serve people, that they were doing it for the people, like they feel bad maybe, or, oh, well, I got to do it anyway, or this is tradition, I got to love people. Their tank to love was getting empty. And I would say oftentimes us, we do as well. Our, our tank to love will get empty if we try to love people for any reason outside the name of Jesus. The only source that keeps on filling up when we are busy, when we are busy about the name of Jesus and the work of Jesus, the only thing that keeps filling us up is Jesus. Not one conference, not a book, not one study. It's Jesus himself that can only fill us up. And they left the reason why they were doing things. They may have started well. They probably did. But then it started creeping in. The flesh started creeping in. The, the riots kept getting under their skin. In the same way, outside of loving others and, and a, different, a wrong source being used, ministry can easily become an idol. That we find our identity in serving rather than finding our identity in the servant being Jesus. And this, I know, has been for me for sure that we just get caught up in doing because we always do it and we have this experience or feel good. And so we just keep on going and we do it in our own strength. And the work gets done because clearly here in Ephesus, the church was commended for the work. So it's not like the, all the ministry fails, but they've missed the point. They've missed the service, the, the, the source. And maybe the ministry just got to be the normal thing to do as a routine. There was a lack of passion and excitement that boiled over. Why? Because the love of Jesus was missing. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Because we are convinced that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, conquering sin and death forever, bringing us in relationship to him. Because of that, Christ's love compels us to now go serve. Seeing people around you that need help should not compel you to serve fully. That's not the source of it. Jesus needs to compel us. And then Jesus, in his grace and in his spirit, gives us his heart and his eyes to see the people in need, to see the people that are lost and dying that need help, the people that need to be fed the word of God. But if it does not start with Jesus, then we've missed the point. And so what was, and so here it goes on. It says, remember, therefore. So you've abandoned this love. You've left the source of Jesus, the love of Jesus that he showed, and then we responded. So he then says, 
What was your life like when you first met Jesus? Remember what you used to do. So I ask you, what was your life like when you first met Jesus, when you first fell in love with Jesus? What was your motivation at that time? What were your habits or disciplines? How did you interact with others, both in and outside the church? Certainly, there are different seasons in life, so you don't need to replicate every aspect. So, for example, for me, I was in college and I had a lot of time. Now I have two small kids. And so it's going to look different, but the heart should not be different. The heart should be growing in love. It should be coming back to the basics of the gospel. Has your love of Jesus grown or has it waned? Has it decreased? In the midst of your service, do you take times in your days and weeks and just sit down with Jesus and worship Jesus? And I'm not even talking about getting through that reading plan because I know a lot of you do that, which is good. But as I mentioned, even when we were talking about John, do you sit down with Jesus, no strings attached, no even, even books sometimes, and just sit with him to meditate on the love of God, the fear of God, what he has done for you? what he is doing in you, what he wants to do in you. We get so caught up in doing and checking things off a list, which may not be bad and may need to continue, but we, don't, we oftentimes lose the love that we first had. And so as you serve in whatever capacity, whether it is at church, in the home, on the streets, at the workplace, why do you do what you do? And for me, there's been times I, I love doing street evangelism, campus evangelism, wherever there's people. And there's been times where I go and I'm praying on the way. I'm like, my heart's not in the right place. And there's literally been times I go and just sit on a bench and I don't talk to anyone because I just need to pray. And praise the Lord, he convicted me of that because it probably should happen more than, than it happens. And there's been times where I just, I committed to go and then I can't go because my heart's not in the right place. My love for the people is not there. And so then, oh, then my love for Jesus is not there. And so I've experienced this firsthand, and it is so good when we just stop and sit. He will restore you and fill, you, fill your cup to overflowing. But we have to just recognize that we're empty. Most of us are running, not maybe most, but many of us are probably running on empty. And so be filled with the Spirit of God. And so it says, remember where you came from. Secondly, to repent. Metanoia is the word. It's to change your mind. So change your mind on just trying to run 100 miles an hour and to just sit at Jesus' feet. Remember and turn, change your mind that you and ministry and the people that you serve are not the center, but Jesus and the gospel, the good news that Jesus died and rose again, is and should be the center. And then secondly, in addition to repent of changing our mind, is doing it. Because if we in our mind like, oh yeah, I probably should sit at Jesus' feet more. Oh yeah, I think my attitude's wrong. But if you keep on doing it, it's not going to change anything. There has to be a change. And so that's why it says, do that which you used to do. Do that which is on the foundation of Jesus. And if not, there is a consequence. And if not, it says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. And if you read this passage just by itself, you might be like, well, Jesus is taking the spirit away and we're unsaved now. But remember what lampstand means. It's the churches, the church. So he's saying, if we replace the word because Jesus gave it, is he will remove the church from its place. Not the individual. We cannot be unsaved. Greg mentioned it last, last week as well. 
God, once we are saved truly, I think there are a lot of people that claim salvation that are not saved, but we cannot be unsaved. And I would love to talk to you if you have questions on that doctrine. We'll spend four hours on that. I'm already supposed to meet up with someone on it. I love talking about this stuff, but it's not saying that these people will be taken away salvation, just to be crystal clear on that. So what does he mean? Jesus will in some way either remove his spirit or hand from the church and or there will be a reduction of impact and reach by the church. Remove it from its place. And so we want to just simply obey. Rather than dealing with the consequences, the first option is just simply obey because then we don't have to figure out what that looks like. But what would happen if God removed the spirit from our churches? A.W. Tozer said this. I'm sure some of you have heard this, but it says, he says, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, and he was in the, the 1900s, 95% of what we would do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, so the book of Acts, if you will, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. I don't know your experience in the churches, in different churches, but I have absolutely experienced this. Uh, I, I've been to churches where I hear this sermon. I was like, there's no heresy. There's no like, false teaching that I want to stand up and like, correct or anything. But it just feels dead. I would say there are many churches like that today. And, and so I pray, and I hope you would join with us, that pray that our church would be filled with the Spirit and not just busy, that we would not lose our first love of Jesus, lose the love of the gospel that saved us. We want to be effective for Jesus, people's lives being changed. This can only be done with the foundation of the love of Jesus and the power of his Spirit. So pray with us as well that this church would be a church led by the Spirit and not just us being busy. So let's go on. Revelations 2, 6 through 7 says this. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus adds in one more commendation. So maybe he didn't want to end on like, I'll remove the lampstand. He wanted to, okay, you're doing good here too. Maybe he knew the people would need that. But it says that, that he's commending that they hate the work of Nicolaitans. First, the word hate. A lot of times it's like, don't use the word hate. It's too strong. Uh, it's not too strong for God, so I guess it's not too strong for us. That we hate sin. We hate false teaching. That we hate things, more specifically, that hurt the people, the creation of God. That we hate the impacts of these things and the people that they are leading astray. God hates them, and we hate it as well. So who were these Nicolaitans? We actually don't know 100% sure, but some thoughts here, it's also mentioned in another later that we'll get to. The, word, the root word, uh, Nicola, it means let us eat, which is interesting. So it's like, were they just gluttons? I don't know. But we know from other parts of Scripture in 1 Corinthians that there was a lot of dispute of eating at the temple and eating with the temple priests, if you will. So a lot of people say that they went too far with their so-called liberties and then in turn started to live in sin. 
Uh, we hear from some church fathers writing about the Nicolaitans that they were living sexually immoral lives, fornication in the pagan temples. And not only were they doing it, but they were telling people that it was okay. And I think that's where it escalates a level, is not only have they chosen to give themselves over to sin and sexual sin and see Romans 1, but they also were leading others astray. And that's where it escalates, I would say. That's where the word hate comes in, of this is not okay to be plucking people that are seeking to know God, and they're being led astray. Some believe these Nicolaitans came, and we don't know for sure, but they came from uh, the deacon in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Nicholas was one of the deacons, so some say that he fell away. But I think either way, whether it was someone who fell away or who come from outside. But I would say it is reasonable to think that it came from within. That these people, the church of Ephesus, cast the Nicolaitans out. And so it was a positive thing that they dealt with the sin, similar to what they said before, of they do not bear with sin. They do not bear with false doctrine. God is jealous for, us, for his own. And if you try to mess with them, and lead them astray, you are sitting in the hands of an angry God. And you can see Hebrews on that as well. But the church was commended in this area. <clears throat> and then verse 7, it goes on, as I mentioned, the, the call to obey. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice, the letter was to Ephesus, but now it says what he says to the churches, plural. And so that, again, shows that this was not exclusive word to Ephesus. This was uh, inclusive to all churches, both present and future, where we are today. And so God is telling you, Jesus is telling you, if you have an ear to hear, if you can hear what we are saying, what I'm saying, if you hear what the word of God is saying, let him hear. Call to obedience. <clears throat> And then lastly, it goes on, it says, to the, one, uh, the promise now, the future promise, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So to the one who conquers, does that mean we just got to like work harder now? Like we already are at exhaustion, now we have to go even more? No, it's not saying that when it says conquering. It's conquering the temptation to move away from Jesus, conquering the temptations of sin. You do not just have to buck up and work harder. God says this in Romans 8, 37. It says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors because we worked hard? No. We are conquerors through him who loved us. Come back to the word of Jesus, to the gospel of Jesus, to the salvation that he brings to us when, we, when he dies and rose, rose again. When we can confess our sin of God, save me, God, forgive me. That's how we become conquerors. We die to ourselves so that God can lift us up again and name us and, and tell us and show us that we are more than conquerors. And Romans 8, the context, in the midst of sin, disease, trial, persecution, nakedness, danger, that's when God declares that we are conquerors through him who loved us. So no matter what you're going through, you feel like the world is beating you and beating you badly that you have nothing left. God declares that you are a conqueror through him who loved us. What is the reward of those who conquer, those who 
submit to the gospel, to submit to Jesus, it says the tree of life. And this is pretty clearly referencing bringing it back to the Garden of Eden. Remember that story. Our relationship is restored back to God, but this time with nothing in between, with no sin in between. This is absolutely future looking because it says that which is in the paradise of God, in the presence of God, in the life to come. So for those who hold fast to the gospel that don't get caught up in the busyness, the false teaching, the sin that so easily entangles us, to the one who conquers, we will be granted the tree of life that we can walk with Jesus, that we can speak with Jesus, that we can be in his embrace, that he can sing over us but only if we continue to have the bedrock of Jesus, not forsaking our first love, but rather abiding in him in the midst of the work that we are doing in his name. We will be experiencing this relationship. And I really believe that God grants us this closeness to relationship also on this side of heaven. Yes, it's only dimly through a mirror, if you will, but I believe if we are living with our first love of Jesus and then in turn serving him, we are going to see such a sweet and close and gentle relationship with Jesus, and there is nothing better. And so God wants, us to, wants to fill us with his spirit, even on this side of heaven. And so for those who have left and abandoned their first love of Jesus, and you might not be like watching pornography or sin and pride or screaming at people. If you are doing all this work and toiling, yet your motivation, yet your source, yet you are empty. For those who have abandoned their first love, today is the day for change. Today is the day that you center your life, your work, your family, your ministry back on Jesus. You don't have to run through hoops to do it. It's simply sit at his feet. And I know even just in the last few weeks, I've had to do that like every two days of like, okay, Jesus, I'm off again. Because times are hard, and that's when we, we go to other sources. So let's be filled with the Spirit and not just go about the same things every day like zombies. Let's come back to the Spirit of Jesus. And for those who cannot think of a time that you've ever even experienced a love from or to Jesus, because I'm sure there are some here, that you can't say, remember where you came from, because you were never there. Please, I would love to talk to you. Jesus loves you right now, baggage and all, more than you can ever imagine or experience on this earth. Nothing can love you more than what Jesus does right this second. He will save you today, and I can guarantee you a thousand percent that your love for him will be otherworldly, something that you have never and will never experience. I remember the day I got saved. My whole body, and this might sound crazy, felt weightless tears of being loved so deeply and I knew nothing I knew no doctrine because I was living a sinful life I knew nothing of what would happen even the next day I knew nothing of the challenges of life but I knew the ever-present God I knew the Jesus that died for me and that was enough and I really believe that you can experience that today and I'd love to talk to you more with you about this Jesus. So let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you that you pursued us in love by stepping out of glory, this glory vision that we saw that is so beautiful and fearful to come and be beaten, to be mocked, to be persecuted, to be hungry, just to bridge the gap between you and us, Lord. Lord, thank you for saving so many of us. And Lord, as I look back to where I came from and the first moments of love for you, Lord, I pray for myself to bring me back there. I pray for each one who is saved, that you would bring them back to the first love of Jesus. That the lack of knowledge and the concerns and the worries of this world, the temptations of the world, but simply the love of Jesus, Lord, and help us to sit here and sit there, not just today, but every day. God, forgive us for abandoning your love, abandoning your presence, and trying to fill us ourselves with other things. Lord, I pray for the people that have never experienced this weightless, beautiful love of Jesus. I pray that you would fill them and sing over them right now, God, that they would confess their sins to you, and that you would take the weight of their sin, take the weight of their addictions out off of them, and that they can be free forevermore. Lord, help us to be faithful in this side of heaven, to obey you, and Lord, we look forward to the rewards of nearness to you, both here and also one day in full in your presence in paradise. Lord, we ask that you would come quickly, And Lord, if you, if you wait, if you tarry, Lord, I pray that you would save more people so that more people can worship you, God, because you and your love, your good news of the gospel is worth it, God. In Jesus' name we pray.